I'm so glad you're here tonight, and we're going to look at, as we continue in our series of Mark, we're going to come to a passage of Scripture that you're all familiar with, and that's the Transfiguration. But we're also going to, it's going to be a rather lengthy read as we get started with it, because I think to get the whole context of the story, we need to go up to the mountain, we need to climb the mountaintop, and then we need to descend the mountain with Jesus, because you go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, there's this incredible, incredible revelation of who Jesus is. And then you come down the mountain, and all of a sudden you're dealing with a, a, a little boy that the disciples aren't able to help. It's not the three disciples that went up with Jesus, it's the other nine. And there's arguing going on. And there's so much to look at here that I really want us to take time to look at it and to say, what is God trying to say to you and what is God trying to say to me in this passage tonight? So Keith has prayed for us. Let's just look at it. I'm going to make some comments as we get started tonight. And if you're watching online, uh, you can. Uh, we've got the scripture and the notes right there in our church app. If you want to download Woodland Church from the Google Play Store or from the Apple Store, and you can follow along right with me there. But we're going to start at Mark 9, verse 2. <clears throat> Six days later, later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. How would you like to be invited to go to the mountains with Jesus? Wouldn't that be cool? Let's, Jesus says, let's go to the mountaintop. And as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. And his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. And then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Now you have to ask yourself why Elijah and why Moses are the two that are talking with Jesus. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Moses was the one that established, God gave him the law to establish the life, um, the, the worship, the, the, the economy for Israel. Elijah was the one that called them back to the life and to the law and to the worship and the economy of Israel. So both of them, God met them on a mountain. Both of them saw the glory of God. Uh, Moses had to be covered in a cleft of a rock, remember? And then Elijah was standing at the cave and, and the glory of God passed by and he was protected. And now the disciples are seeing something and they're safe from it. And we're going to have to really take a look at that in just a moment of why they're safe from it. But there are a number of reasons here that I could just keep on going. A couple of other things I'd say to you before I keep going here is that remember Moses died and God buried him. Elijah was raptured up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So there is a lot going on when you look at this because you got to think, why, why Elijah? I mean, Elijah wasn't a writing prophet. We don't have a book of Elijah. Why not Isaiah? Why not Jeremiah? But again, Elijah had this unusual experience with God. And so that's why we're looking at them this evening. So Mark 9, verse 5, let's keep reading. Peter exclaimed, now you've got to remember, they had been sleeping. They had been sleeping again, okay? They went up in the mountain. We get this from Matthew and Luke. Peter, they woke up. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi. It's wonderful for us to be here. Now remember, two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Peter confessed him as Christ, the Son of God. Now he's calling him teacher. Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let us make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he really didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Most people, when they're frightened, they just shut up. 
Not Peter. When he's scared, he starts talking, you know. And so he said, let's build three shelters. And, and the reason for a temple was temples were places of worship that were to protect you from the presence of God in all religions. That's kind of what they were. They had different priests who made sacrifices so they could take away, you know, your sins or what have you. So really when he's saying let's build three shelters, he's talking about let's build something here that will protect us from what's happening right here. And then, while Peter is talking, in verse 7, then a cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, overshadows him, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son, listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. Now, the cloud is what theologians call the Shekinah glory of God. It was the cloud that led them by day, the fire at night. It was the cloud that descended upon Mount Horeb when Moses received the law. And when he came down, if you remember, his face was just all aglow. And the people asked him to wear a veil because the glory of God was so bright upon him. But you see, when the voice speaks, when God speaks, suddenly Elijah, the law, excuse me, the prophets, and Moses, the law, they're gone because Jesus is the bridge. The law never justifies. The law never saves. And now what you're seeing is Christ alone, the one that's going to go to the cross. He's going to fulfill all that the temple and the priests were all about. He's going to fulfill all that the prophets have prophesied about. He's the one that's going to bring us for what we've always longed for, and that is union with God. We want to be... We're missing what we were created for in the Garden of Eden. Years ago, and I'm dating myself here. Any of you remember Star Trek? Years ago, there was a Star Trek series where a group of people were trying to get back to Eden. And I, that show made such an impact on me. I was just a kid at that time watching that. But going back to Eden. But the whole idea was a longing to be reunited with paradise. Friends, paradise is not paradise without God. Paradise is not paradise without Christ. You can never create a paradise on this earth, but you can have paradise in your heart when you have Jesus as Lord of your life. So in verse 9, as they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Who's going to believe them anyway? Okay? Can you imagine these three guys come out and say, hey, we just saw Moses and Elijah on the mountain, you know? You should have seen what... Nobody's going to believe them until Jesus is resurrected from the dead. So in verse 10, they kept it to themselves, but they often ask each other, the three of them, they often ask each other what he meant by rising from the dead. They just could not accept the fact that Jesus was going to suffer and die for our sins. Then they ask him, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? And in verse 12, Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they chose to abuse him just as the scriptures predicted. You know, he's talking about John the Baptist here. We've already dealt with that. In verse 14, when they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. Now, We've come down the mountain. We've gone up the mountain. Now we've come down the mountain. Any of you ever done any mountain climbing? 
You go up, and it's clear, it's cool, it's beautiful. You see forever. You come back down the mountain, if, especially in the southeast. It's humid, and, you know, you just go back to the, the smells of diesel and everything else. So they've come back down. You see, the first thing you see is a large crowd. You see an argument going on. It's almost like when Moses came down the mountain. Remember that? And the people were made an idol, and they were worshiping the idol. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. Jesus asked, what is all this arguing about? And one of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground, and then he foams at the mouth, grinds at his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples, cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, just a hard stop. I don't think he was talking about the crowd. I think he was talking about the nine. Okay, and you're going to see why in just a moment. So they bought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion. He fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long, is the boy, how long has this been happening, Jesus asked the boy's father, and he replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. And the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Say that with me. Never enter him again. When Christ does a work of salvation in your life, it's complete. The spirit screamed, threw the boy into another violent convulsion, and left him. And the boy appeared to be dead. Now picture this. This is not just a passing thing. It's big enough that a murmur runs through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, now listen, the nine, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus basically tells them, because you didn't pray. This kind can be cast out only by prayer. And the King James Version adds, and by fasting. And I think that is appropriate as well. I don't think that some of the modern translations, because some of the earliest ones, they don't see that. But I've asked several scholars, and they said, no, fasting, it's, it's very believable that fasting would have been there. But this is what it reads. So this kind can only be cast out by prayer. I think there are several lessons, that, and because I wanted to make so many comments during the reading of the Scripture, so you get the whole thing, this is more like a survey, so I'm going to be very brief, and we'll discuss more about this during our Q&A session. Number one, the first lesson is go where Jesus takes you. Go where Jesus takes you. Now, everybody wants to go to the mountains. If Jesus asked me to go to the mountain with him, I'd be ready to go. If Jesus asked me to go to the cross with him, I'd be saying, can I pray about that a little bit longer? And so that's the whole message of the gospel because everything is headed to the cross. 
a matter of fact, Jesus has already told us if we want to follow him, we've got to be willing to take up our cross and follow him. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. You know, these three guys, they had a very close relationship with Jesus. Jesus is singling them out sometimes. It doesn't mean he doesn't love the other nine. doesn't mean he doesn't trust the other nine. But these three guys seem to be ones that were willing to just move when Jesus said to move. However, they were going to need to be encouraged. And for this encouragement, they were going to need, and Peter will reflect on this. If you remember when we went through First and Second Peter verse by verse, we talked about this. Peter was reflecting on this very moment. Because six days earlier, remember when, G, when Peter made his confession, six days earlier, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer and die. And what did Peter go? No, Lord, never. And Jesus rebuked him. And yet this experience on the mountaintop would be unforgettable because it would encourage and it would strengthen Peter. It would strengthen James and John. But here's an important point. They forgot it during the Passion. And later on tonight... Before you go to bed, so you don't forget, I'd like you to sit down. Look at me. I don't want you to miss this. Those of you watching online, sit down with your journal or a piece of paper. Write down a time in your life when you know that God really met you. You had this incredible encounter with the Lord. Because we tend to forget those moments when times of crisis come, like it did for Peter, James, and John. They forgot this moment. And it was only after Jesus' resurrection that they put it all back together again. Secondly, remember those mountaintop experiences. Becky and I have pictures, photos, and movies. And we go back and we watch those when our boys were little. We go back and we look at vacations. And we go, I forgot about that. And it brings it all the way back. Sometimes I can smell things. I, sometimes I remember food that we ate. And we'll, because we remember when we look back at those memories. We have little art objects that we have bought around the world. We have little vases and things that Becky has bought around the world. They bring back memories to us. And we learn from them. And there were several things that I think that the disciples learned. Peter, James, and John learned of that mountain. First, that heaven operates on a level that you and I will never know on this earth. They are just suddenly smitten with the dazzling brightness of God's glory. My son Christopher, who is an architect, he loves welding. Recently, he had an opportunity on a job that he was working on uh, to weld. And he called home and he says, hey, Send me my welding gear. And so I called him later. He said, Dad, I'm having a blast. I forgot how much fun this really was. But that dark screen on his helmet to protect his eyes. You know, the light of heaven. When the disciples saw Jesus transfigured, that glory was coming from within him. They saw him as he really was. That's important. Don't miss that. Remember his clothes, the Bible says, they were whiter than any bleach could make them. There are white garments that Jesus appears in, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Daniel. You are going to be clothed in garments of white when you and I are in heaven one day. Secondly, you need to remember that Jesus, when that, that moment is over, they see him again. Jesus came as a humble servant, but he will return as a conquering king. And then the third thing I think you need to remember is that people are invited. Moses is there because he's a man who followed God. 
Elijah is there because he's a man who bore witness to God's message. And Peter, James, and John are there because they accepted Christ's invitation to go up to the mountain. Look at this. Jesus' appearance, and I'm looking at verse 2, was transformed. His clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. That glory coming out of him tells you he is fully God yet fully man. So that Christmas, when we talk about the incarnation, at Christmas, when we talk about God becoming man, at Easter, when we talk about God dying for us in Christ for our sins, you're seeing he's fully man, but he's also fully God. That's the mystery and the wonder of the, of the, of the incarnation and the transfiguration revealing that up. Look at 2 Peter 1, verse 16. We were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly son who brings me great joy. Just to remind you, do you remember why Peter was writing first and second Peter? Because the church was undergoing such severe persecution. Peter was a part of that persecution, being persecuted. Peter would be, tradition says, was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified right side up. And so he's writing, reminding them of the glory that's going to come. The reason I want you to write this down tonight is because inevitably all of us are headed to a cross. Inevitably all of us are headed to another trial. All of us are headed to another testing in our life. And we need to remember those moments that God met with us. In the book of Hebrews, look at this. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Would you circle that phrase, radiates? Or excuse me, the word radiates, the word expresses, the word sustains, and then the word cleansed. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. He is God. He's radiating God's own glory. Jesus is not reflecting the character of God. He's expressing. You want to know what God is like? Study Jesus and the Gospels. Then, then you'll know what God is like. Jesus is sustaining everything. Remember Paul wrote that all of creation, everything that we know is sustained by the presence of Christ. But what gets me more than anything else here is that God has cleansed me from my sin. Sin cannot stand in the presence of God. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. But what it does mean is that Christ has washed us away from our sins. And one day, we'll be able to stand in the presence of God. And we won't need to build a temple. There will not be a need of a temple in heaven because we will be in the very presence of God. Every once in a while, somebody will call me and say, do you... What do you think about rebuilding the temple in Israel? I said, I don't know if that's going to be built or not. But I said, listen, we don't need the sacrifice of bulls and goats in Jerusalem again. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God that was crucified for us. Number three, learn to listen. I think it is so funny that Peter opens his mouth and says, let's build three temples. I mean, you've got to just remember, they're being blasted with the glory of God. They're being blasted with the presence of the Lord. He says, let's build a temple. Remember protection, sacrifices, something to take away our sins. And God speaks and Peter shuts up. 
I think what the Lord is saying, we have to learn to listen. I want you to write down, listen, I want you to write down those moments where you felt like God met you, but I want you to learn we don't build our faith on those moments. We build our faith on the Word of God. And how Peter and James and John interpreted all of this was with the law and the prophets because the New Testament would be given to us later. So it's important that we listen to God speak. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. I want to read you a quote. This is from an old book. It was one that was recommended to me by some of my professors in college. It has been such a blessing. It's called Jesus the Messiah. It's by Alfred Eidersham. It has been observed that by the side of every humiliation connected with the humanity of the Messiah, the glory of his divinity was also made to shine forth. The coincidences are manifestly undesigned on the part of the evangelic or gospel writers, and hence all the more striking. Thus, if he was born of the humble maiden of Nazareth, an angel announced his birth. If the infant Savior was cradled in a manger, the shining host of heaven hymned his advent. And so afterwards, if he hungered and was tempted in the wilderness, angels ministered to him, even as an angel strengthened him in the agony of the garden. If he submitted to baptism, the voice and vision from heaven attested his sonship. If enemies threatened, he could miraculously pass through them. If he was nailed to the cross, the sun caped its brightness and earth quaked, for he was laid in the tomb. Angels kept his watches, and then angels herald his rising. What's he saying there? That even though you see him as fully human, you see that behind Jesus always is the power of heaven. And behind your life tonight is the power of heaven. And I think what we have to take away from this tonight is we have to be prepared to come away. And maybe the reason you have to remember like the disciples did because they forgot, we have to be prepared to come down from the mountain with discernment. Why did God bless us with that experience? I've heard so much about what happened in our church Sunday morning. God moved in this place. God touched hearts. God was touching lives in a deep way on Father's Day. And we have to say to ourselves, what was the word? What was the message? Remember when we shouted the name of Jesus? There were people that just felt freedom at that moment. Understand something. We don't build on experiences. We build on the word of God. So what was God saying to us? So always be prepared to descend from those moments with discernment because we want to be like the sons of Israel like this, so that we have discernment and understand the times that we live in. In Mark 9, as they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So how do we see the glory of Christ in a valley? How do we take what we saw on the mountain to the valley? Do any of you remember a few years ago when I, I filmed Becky? We were rock climbing up in the North Georgia mountains, and I filmed Becky going up the, the thing, and I posted it, and that so many people were commenting. I was so proud of Becky because, number one, Becky is terribly frightened of heights. And the fact that she even <clears throat> got on that, that rock face and began, even though she was on belay, that, that she did that, and she climbed, and she fell, and, but the belay caught her, and she went right back up that mountain. I, we brought that down, and we, we remembered that moment, and we've reflected on that moment. But it's in the valley where you go back to living. We rode with somebody that night that was taking us back to where we were staying, 
in the middle of nowhere, I'm talking about in the middle of nowhere, wrapping, winding roads in Macon, and not in Macon, but in North Georgia, while their car was on empty for about 50 miles. I mean, it had been on empty, stayed on empty, was flashing lights, telling, and all we knew to do was pray, Jesus, there's no street lights in the North Georgia mountains, you know? And the, it's just forever. And somehow or another, that car, it wasn't my car, so just to let you know, when my car gets to half tank, I fill it up. We got home, and then I prayed for the man that brought us home, Lord, please get him to a gas station. He had to drive another 35 miles, and he called me and says, you won't believe it, I got to the gas station. I'm telling you, God does answer prayer, you know? Now, the moral of that is, don't run on empty and then pray, you know? Just, I think because Becky and I didn't need to be left at those mountains by ourselves. But if you want to see the glory of God, never fail to pray. And I think that's what happens with most people is their failure to pray. In Mark 9 and verse 28, when Jesus was alone with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast it out? This kind can only be cast out by prayer. Sometimes there are spiritual battles you're not going to fight with your smarts. You're not going to fight with your income. You're not going to fight with your strength. You're not going to fight with the organization of a church or a denomination. I think America and the world are facing some crises right now. We have to have a move of God. And we have to pray. The Bible says, if my people, which are called by, name, by my name, will pray. That word if would not be there if the people of God aren't tempted not to pray from time to time. So how do we do that? Number one, spend time alone with him. Spend time alone with him. Because what I take from this story, and I preached on this several times here at Woodland, helplessness, not holiness, is your first step. Helplessness, not holiness. This man was riddled with doubt. He believed, but he had doubts. How many of you would be honest? I believe, but I have some doubts from time to time. I mean, I do. I come to the Lord often and say, Lord, help me with these doubts. But when the Father instantly cried out, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief, Jesus responded. He, he did a miracle because the man admitted he was helpless. He didn't try to fake Jesus out. And the second thing is, you've got to keep trusting Jesus even when it looks like you've lost everything. I don't imagine there was anything more precious to that dad than his son. And sometimes when you give God your life, sometimes when you give God your children, sometimes when you give God that which is most precious to you, it looks like it's going to die. It looks like it's going to fail. Look at this. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. The spirit screamed, threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. When Jesus spoke to the boy, immediately, look at what happened. A convulsion, violent convulsion. The boy appeared to be dead. He must have fell on the ground. And a murmur began running through the crowd. He's dead. I just want you to know, sometimes what you give to God, it seems like it's going to go from bad to worse. But don't you give up, because Jesus is always going to take you by the hand and he's going to make you the head and not the tail. He's going to give you victory. And for that verse, I'll just close on this tonight. In Romans 8, 16, his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. So the transfiguration, it's about a lot more than just three disciples seeing the glory of God. It's about the three disciples 
remembering that Christ who would be crucified for our sins after Christ had resurrected, after Christ had risen from the dead, remembering that he's more than a power worker. He is the son of God. He is your savior. He is your Lord. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves, each of us are on the way to a cross because unless we're willing to take up our cross and follow him, we can't be his. So tonight, let me encourage you, join with me in prayer as those of here at the church join with me in prayer tonight. And let's ask God to make us faithful to Jesus and to follow him. He's inviting you and me to come along with him tonight. So Heavenly Father, we're asking you this evening in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we won't follow you just for the miracles. We won't follow you just for the feeding of the 5,000. Lord, that we won't follow you because we have expectations of your establishing a a kingdom on this earth, whether it's a Republican kingdom, a Democratic kingdom. But Lord, we'll follow Jesus, even if it means to the cross, because after every cross, there is a resurrection, just like there was for this little boy. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen and amen. God bless you. Good night. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to have a Q&A session here now, and I hope you'll come out and join us soon and be a part of this.